Welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. On this show, we share Ginger's journey and speak with subject matter experts about a variety of dementia-related topics. Ginger, a former English teacher and librarian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. This diagnosis has changed her world and has given her a unique perspective on life and living. I'm Christoph, Ginger's son and full-time caregiver. I've created this podcast as a way to share the best practices I'm learning about caring for a person with dementia. Along the way, we'll document my mother's journey through her unique storytelling. You can subscribe to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast and find all the resources we discuss at lwalz.com. In this episode of Living with Alzheimer's, I interview Tina Sadaragani, assistant professor at NYU's Roy Myers College of Nursing. We discuss her research efforts to improve healthcare outcomes for the elderly and her app called CareMobi, which helps connect family caregivers, in-home caretakers, staff at adult care programs, and medical providers so that they can share health information with each other on a single platform. Tina describes the benefits of adult day centers for caregivers and those living with dementia and why it's important to get involved early in the dementia journey. Tina goes on to share key warning signs for acute infections in the elderly. And she talks about Enlightened Caregiver, a social media feed with tips for caregivers to be effective advocates for their loved one in the doctor's office or hospital. Well, hi, Tina. Thanks for joining me on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. Your uh, curriculum vitae, your CV, reflects an extensive background in gerontological medicine. And I'm wondering if you could tell listeners what you do as the assistant professor at NYU Rory Myers College of Nursing. Yeah, so I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, And I'm really excited to share a little bit about what it is that I do in my role. Um, So I'm an assistant professor, and you might think that that means I spend most of my time teaching nursing and medical students about geriatrics, which is my specialty. I happen to also be um, a geriatric primary care nurse practitioner. But actually, interestingly enough, in the last few years, most of my time is spent doing research. And I'm specifically doing research to figure out how we can make our healthcare system better for older people and their families and the people who provide them care well into their last days of life. Mm -hmm. Um, So my research in this avenue, I I have a lot of support from the National Institutes of Health. Um, I conduct a lot of research in different kind of spaces, everyday spaces, to think about how can we better resource them to produce better outcomes for the most vulnerable people in them. So I spend a lot of time researching the unmet needs of people with Alzheimer's disease as well as their family caregivers who, you know, are doing so much to make sure that every one of their day-to-day needs is met. They're doing so much advocacy that they don't even realize. And I really try to spend time focusing on the impacts of that on the caregiver's health 
as well. Um, so I'm really excited about the work I'm doing. I'm trying to come up with more scientific solutions, technologies to help integrate some of the care that people receive in the community setting. So I know we'll talk about this later, but I do a lot of work in adult day settings, thinking about how we can take them from places where people think of them as dancing and dominoes to actual effective platforms for chronic disease and Alzheimer's disease management so that caregivers and families and patients have more resources in the community and then studying and researching how we can use them to actually measurably improve health outcomes. Wow. Okay, you packed a lot yes. <laughs> into that I, I short to do period that. of time. And I got dancing and dominoes out of there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I always think of it as bingo, you know. We're, bingo, going, bingo. we're going to the senior center to play bingo. Uh, yeah, and I, I definitely want to talk about the adult day uh, center, the senior care centers, um, you know, because that's something... I tried with my mom and at the stage she was initially, she didn't dig it. Right. She was like, she actually said, don't do this to me. Right. <laughs> that right. was like, okay, mom, well, we're going to try it out. And, you know, after a few weeks we decided it wasn't for her right then. Right. You know, so, but I'm definitely interested in hearing more about that. And the research that you do um, sounds extensive and I know research is painstaking. So I'm imagining that, you have a number of grad students that are working with you to help, uh, you know, facilitate the the research process. And what is the focus of that research? Right. So um, we do. I wish we, we had more students. The more we could do, the more people that are interested in this field and are pursuing it professionally, you know, just the more ground we can cover and the better and more innovative things that we can come up with. Um, I particularly value emerging young researchers in this space who really bring with them a fresh perspective on how we can address problems. I think a lot of the issues that we see in caring for older adults are because we've been doing the same thing you know, for the last mm -hmm. 50 years. And we really yep. haven't evolved in our thinking. And some of the innovation, social media, technology, things that we use in our everyday life for other things haven't fully yet transferred into care of older adults and people right. with Alzheimer's disease. So I think that's going to change soon and I'm hopeful, but we're not there yet. So I always invite new students for their innovative and fresh perspectives. Mm -hmm. But of late, one of the most important areas of my research over the last few years has stemmed both from my experiences as a clinician, as a nurse practitioner, but also and the research I've done in these adult day programs, but also as my own experience as becoming a family caregiver and watching my own father suffer um, from a very uh, extensive chronic illness. He has end-stage renal disease, and this has been very, very complicated and has impacted his cognitive function, his physical function, okay. and many, many aspects of his life and our life and of my mother's life as well. Right. Because I think anybody who's listening to this podcast knows that these illnesses don't just affect one person, they affect an entire family. Right. Um, so of late, to your question, my research has really focused on the creation of a mobile application because what I was finding, so the app is called CareMobi, and I'll tell you a little bit about this research and science fact. Yep. So um, as a nurse practitioner, I know that when you come to see your provider, you know, you come with a list of questions, hopefully, or or there's been things going on and it's overwhelming. You have 18 minutes on average research shows with the doctor to tell them what's been going on. Yep. And and of the, actually, you don't even have 18 minutes. 18 minutes is the total visit time. The research shows that you get to only talk for about five of those minutes, right? Yep. And especially when you're caring for someone who's cognitively impaired, there's so many odd and unusual signs and symptoms. And so what I found 
is that even my mother, who was the best caregiver possible for my father, she's a physician, was keeping everything in a notebook. And so if I was taking over for her and the, I went to see him with the doctor and the doctor said, well, when was his last cardiologist appointment? How's he been eating? How's he been sleeping? Yep. You know, what did this doctor say? Have you known what has he been taking his medications regularly? If I am not the person who's there with him every single day, it is hard for me to have the right answers to those sure. questions. And my mother, as I said, was keeping this in a notebook. And I said, if something happens to you tomorrow, how am I supposed to know what medications he's taking? What? And so it was really interesting to me that everything else I do in my life is, you know, with my young children is in an app. You know, if my kids go to a daycare program, I know how many bottles they've had, how long they've slept, who they've played with. I get all this insight. Yep. And my grandmother, who is, you know, I'll talk about this later, who used an adult day program for a long period of time that had incredible benefits on her health. It was doing wonderful things, but I noticed the communication between her and my mother was off. And in all the programs I studied, I would ask them, when you notice that something's off with somebody, what do you do? Right. And they said, oh, I send a post-it note home with this person who has some mild cognitive impairment on the bus, or nice. I leave a voicemail for their doctor, or I send right. them a fax. And I'm like, it's 2024. Yeah. What are we doing? Right. And so I really decided to create this mobile app so that families could have a centralized hub to track and share information. So if I'm caring for my dad along with my mother and my siblings, all his information is in one place for us to share. So I can see if he's taking his medications, his list of medications is in there. If my mom happens to not be there, I get reminders to remind him to take his medications. I can track that they've taken them so she's not as worried. His appointments are all in one place, his doctor's questions to ask at every visit. If my mom's taking him, I can put in some questions in the app to say, make sure you ask about this. Um, we can track his appetite, his sleep, his mood. So that, because really as clinicians, what we're really interested in is how is this illness that they have impacting their function? Because that's what we want to do at the end of the day is we want to preserve your function and your quality of life yep. and make sure you're doing the things you love as long as you can. And so if you know, you're seeing that my father was walking a mile yesterday and today he slumped over in a chair just because he has, you know, a bunch of diagnoses on his chart doesn't mean that's who he is. He was functioning very well. And there's something acute going on that we need to address. Mm -hmm. So I really created this tool so that caregivers like me, my mother, like many of the people listening, like you could be more effective advocates in the healthcare setting and actually engage in what we call shared clinical decision-making, which is in their new modern healthcare system, your doctors shouldn't be making decisions for you. They should be making decisions with you and they yep. should be making decisions that are in the best interest of the patient for you and your family. And apps like this give them the necessary data they need to do that. There's so much in there to unpack. Um, I'm going to start from my personal experience. So first of all, CareMobi, um, I will have the description for it in the episode description so that people know how it's spelled, where to find it, etc. Is that available to the public? Yes, it's Already. free. It's okay. a free taxpayer funded, uh, readily available in the app store. So everyone should have it. You can create a care team for yourself just to keep better track of your own health care. Oh my but goodness. Okay. Okay. So definitely we'll <laughs> have to get that <laughs> into the description. Um, so as we were chatting before we started the interview, um, I was saying that I had been in Kansas City for years and my parents uh, here in Grand Rapids, where I am now to take care of my mom, um, is, you know, it's 
the 10 hour drive and, you know, a flight or whatever, you know. So I was trying to help as the oldest son. Um, I was trying to do my uh, due diligence to figure out how are my parents actually doing? You know, I know they're making it, but I don't really know how that's all working out and how is their health and what are the issues and all that. I wanted to know some of those things because, you know, just because they're my folks, but also, you know, for my own sake, I realized that my dad was having some issues that he wasn't talking about. And so none of us kids had any medical knowledge about his, the family history that might be impactful to us. And so I was like, dad, you, you got to, you got to share. And so then I'd say, what happened at your dermatologist appointment? What happened at your whatever appointment? And he would kind of vaguely remember they weren't taking notes. So your mom was doing a good job of who was taking the notes in the notebook. Is that grandma? Yeah, she was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So at least they were doing that. I finally convinced them um, to, when they went into the doctor's office to call me on their cell, yep. put me on speaker and I would take notes for them. That was my whole offer. Mom, Dad, when you're at an appointment, I will take notes for you. You put it on speaker. I will, you know, record whatever I can. I'll ask questions uh, if I am not clear. And at the end of the day, everybody will know what transpired, what the issues are, what the next steps are. Um, and what the questions to be answered are, you know, the things to consider, et cetera, right? Because that stuff was not happening and there was no way to communicate it. And my sister was the one who said, you know, we should put all this into a Google Doc so that we can share it, you know. And so we were kind of making up what it sounds like the CareMobi app does. Okay. Right. All right. And the advantage of the of the CareMobi versus a Google Doc is that it's HIPAA secure and it's protected. Oh, you know, wow. it's so interesting. We're so we're so protective of our health information, but yep. there's so many families who are using Google Docs and other things that are you know you just don't know where your information is going. So this is a much more secure, up to date. You can upload photos. You know, it really functions as a Facebook timeline almost, or like a like okay. an, and you can easily upload. You can keep track of vital signs. It will chart and graph things. We hope to have integrations with wearables soon. So if your mom wears a smartwatch, you know, there's things that can get in information there. And, you know, just another pro tip, uh, your point about the, the taking notes at the visit is so critical. One of the features that we have is you can use your natural microphone of your iPhone when you're there and you can kind of put the microphone on and it will transcribe what they're saying into the app. So you really can focus okay. on what they're saying. And there's, there's a lot of different tools in there to help families, but what you're doing is exactly what so many families are doing. And the added benefit of CareMobi is that you can actually, um, it will summarize all the information for your provider. So what it will do is if you're tracking medications and updates and the provider said, you know, I don't need to know what her blood pressure was every single day. I just want to know on average, what's it been like for the last three months? Has she been taking her medications? And it will conveniently export a summary for them that says she's missed her medication six times this month. She's, you know, her average blood pressure has been, you know, 120 over 80. Mm -hmm. And so then they can see, you know, averages and summaries about major things and, and really get to the point quickly and, and providers love it too. Okay. That's great. Yeah. The other thing that I think of in, uh, you know, current, uh, situations here now is the whole thing about the care team being coordinated. And I feel like 
I'm having to use some of those few minutes that I have with a professional to catch them up on what the PCP said when I'm talking to the neurologist or when I'm talking to the PCP, what the neurologist said, you know, that kind of thing. And all of that information is in my mom's medical chart, you know, so we, uh, it's a epic system, epic based system that, um, you know, my mom's care providers all dip into, but the communication between them is not what I would hope for. Like if I say, uh, Hey, Dr. PCP, would you as the primary care provider, work with the neurologist and the urologist to figure out what's going on with the UTIs that continue to be setbacks for cognitive uh, issues, you know, and I feel like that coordination is not happening, uh, you know, can, so, so that's a big deal for me. Can, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, let's. Honed on something so important, which is the true basis of like what everything I've done. So our, in fact, the research that I've done has shown that family members are truly the brokers of communication across settings. You're absolutely right. There is an interoperable, fancy electronic health record that has all this information. The problem with that is that that record, and this is why interventions like CareMobi are so important, that record does not capture what happens in the community where 99% of healthcare takes place. So I want to, you know, for all the people listening, the role of caregivers is unheralded. We ask you to go implement a care plan, to go monitor symptoms, to, you know, make sure medications are being managed, to do medical and nursing tasks that you have in all likelihood never been prepared for or trained for. Correct. You are, we are, and then we, you come in and we're sort of all thinking, well, isn't the important information in the chart? Well, the information about what you're doing at home and how this person is doing at home is not in that chart, number one. Number two, that's why it becomes so important that the family member, the caregiver like you, who is the quarterback of the care team, comes into the visit prepared to be an effective storyteller. Because when you are the one who's providing the clues to the fam, to the doctor about what path to go on, where in that bloated electronic chart that is full of so much useless information, just start looking for the clues and questions they need. You are 100% right that there's so much fragmentation in healthcare that clinicians do not speak to each other. They don't have time. Mm-hmm. And 80% of medical errors, serious medical errors, are due to miscommunications between the care team. There are 2,000 preventable deaths annually because people don't talk to each other. And so that is why I really believe in coming up prepared with your information, knowing what you're going to talk to, and really being able to effectively track and share, because you are absolutely right. You are the one, and our science shows it, brokering this communication across settings. And in I think, you know, the foundation of our healthcare system is broken. I don't see, even with the fanciest technology and AI solutions, the role of this individual coming in and directing the provider changing anytime soon. And so I think the best tool that we have is greater literacy, greater knowledge. Coming in with that and being empowered and activated is going to be the solution to better outcomes at the end of the day, because you are steering that care team and half the time you don't even realize it. I will add that one of the things I've, in addition to the app, because I don't think it's enough to just hand people an app and say, hey, start collecting information, that I want to point out is another free resource for people 
is um, a social media page that I created called Enlightened Caregiver, okay. because I feel that the only way that we can lighten our load is through knowledge and empowerment and becoming more effective in navigating this broken system that we're all working within as providers, as caregivers, as patients. So Enlightened Caregiver is on Instagram. It's on Facebook. We give families and patients pro tips about how to be more effective in these encounters. Five questions you should never leave the doctor without asking. Unusual signs of illness in older people that caregivers need to be able to spot. So you talked about your mom in the UTI. Mm -hmm. You know, doesn't present the way that you and I would, right? Right. Um, we talk about uh, the importance of knowing what medications your loved one is on, keeping a list of that, um, and just talking to people about how to be more proactive and address some of these issues more readily early on. Um, so that they can be more effective in these settings. And, and so it's another important tool that people need because it is only with more knowledge and information that we're going to be more effective advocates in these settings. That sounds good. So as the resource, let's go back to that real quick. Enlightened Caregiver. Enlightened Caregiver. And it's on Instagram and? Facebook. Facebook, okay. So I will go look for that as well and see if I can include a link in yeah. the description for that. Because that sounds very interesting as a resource. Yes. I can use enlightenment. <laughs> I think we all need it. <laughs> oh fighting down the blind alley all the time. Um, the other thing I thought of while you were talking about all of this in the communication is that my parents are from a generation, and I've spoken about this on other episodes, um, my, my parents are of this generation that don't want to ask questions because they think it's rude. And so, you know, I don't want to take the doctor's time to ask those five questions. And so I was the one who was having to be the bully because that's how my parents almost saw it. You know, it's like, would you stop asking questions because uh, you're wasting their time? And I'm like, you know. no, I'm not wasting their time. I'm using their time as effectively as I can to help take care of you and figure out what's going on and what you should be doing and you know all that and, and helping to educate myself. What are your options? You're not even asking what the options are. Yeah. You know, so uh, that was a frustration of mine was that there was this just general resistance to asking questions. So how, how do you how do you deal with that one? Yes. And I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's a generational shift. I think historically, the doctor has always been at the center of care and just been the person who issues kind of directives and you're supposed to follow them. And we've sort of learned that that doesn't work, right? right. You have to meet people where you are. And, the you know, again, I try to explain that the doctor wants you has your best interest at heart. They want you to do well and they want to do the absolute best for you. Right. And if they are telling you something that's not reasonable for you to do, then they there are other options. You know, because I think you come from an, a a point that they understand. Doctors are super smart. Yeah. Right. So, and they're they're resourceful and they're adaptable and they're creative. So if you say if the doctor says I want you to take this medication and you say but doctor this is so expensive I can't afford it doctors are smart. They can find another alternative for you. Right. They understand you're not the first person who's experienced this. But the last thing the doctor wants you to do is go home and not be able to afford the medication and not take it and come back even sicker than you were before, because that just makes their job that much harder, right? right. So right. coming up with a creative solution, not that hard for them. Dealing with the very sick patient who's on the verge of, there's, you know, you're checking their limitations of their work. And so doctors increasingly are being trained and nurses to work with families, to work together. That is how 
medicine is evolving. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like if you're not prepared to work within that model, it's not going to work anymore because that's how clinicians are being trained. They, they're trained to work with families and to meet patients where they are. And you have to let them know where it is that you are, what okay. your specific needs are. You know, I will say my mother always told me this. And, and frankly, my mother, I think, is one of these people who feels that you should passively just accept what the physicians say. Yep. But my mother also told me people are not mind readers. They are not mind readers. They can't tell, you know, whether something, you know, is not going to work for you or something's making you uncomfortable. So we shouldn't shy away from advocating for ourselves because one thing I always say to people, especially caregivers like you, why bother entering all this information? Why bother doing all this? It's because we don't want usual care for our families or for ourselves. We want optimal care. And what the best care for you is going to be different than what the best care for me is. And that's something to really, really appreciate, understand, and help providers work with you to achieve because that's what everybody wants mm -hmm. is optimal care, not usual care. Yes, you're right. The The other thing that came up in my uh, long list of thoughts related to experiences that I've had is you, you mentioned that a person's condition, their diagnosis isn't just impactful on them. It's impactful on the entire family. And I will even go so far as to, um, you know, wonder if my dad's health issues, uh, contributed to my mom's demise because the Alzheimer's and the, you know, the onset of dementia uh, seemed to be happening really at the same time that he was having a lot of health issues and she was being entrusted to take care of all that. You know, she was supposed to quarterback all of that. And I think it was stressing her out. And it's very possible that the stress of having to manage all of that drove some of the, the dementia uh, in its severity um, as, you know, as she was trying to help him with the things that he really didn't want help with because he wasn't the best patient in the world when when he was with us. You know, he had uh, lymphoma, so uh, that was one condition that was happening, uh, you know, that he fought with that a couple times, bone marrow transplant, chemotherapy, et cetera, and my mom was always his caregiver after those. Um, and uh, he had a mitral valve uh, replaced uh, so a uh, heart valve, uh, mechanical. So he was having to take a blood thinner for that. Anytime he'd have an outpatient, uh, you know, like he had a hernia that needed to be fixed. He had a uh, skin cancer that needed to be repaired. Um, uh, you know, and those outpatient surgeries meant that he had to come off of his blood thinner and onto this temporary shot thing. And my mom was supposed to give him the shots and he hated it. And so there was arguments and stress and, you know, and she didn't want to be doing it in the first place. And, and I was just like, you know what? I didn't even know all that was happening. It yep. wasn't until I got more involved in their day-to-day -day care that I understood how stressed out my mom was by yep. all of that. I just thought they had it handled, you know, and again, that whole lack of communication about what the day-to-day -day really was, it wasn't just the providers who did, weren't aware. Us as kids weren't aware. Yes. We didn't know. And let's talk about that because I think that's a big part of this. You know, people, if, they always say like, if you're going to wait for somebody to ask for help who's an older person, you're going to be waiting like the rest of your life. It, there is a concern as people age, nobody ever wants to be dependent 
right? right? There is this feeling that this fear of asking for help is somehow going to deem you dependent. Yep. And the other thing with, especially with our children, adult children, is, and I speak as someone who's a sandwich generation caregiver with aging parents and young children, mm -hmm. there's a bit of role loss. And what do I mean by that? Your parents are the senior people in your life. For, right. You know, they raised you. They were the authority figures in your life. And suddenly when you are, you know, they're asking you for help or they need you, that that role shifts and that yep. role is lost. And they it feels as if I'm no longer in a position of authority. I might, you know, I'm no, I'm being I'm completely needy and dependent and nobody wants to feel that way. Um, and there is, you know, and oftentimes this concern and need for help just comes too late. And then it does create a position of dependency and nobody wants that. And so I always tell families the earlier that you can have these conversations and normalize them. In fact, while your parents are well, while you're well, just normalizing you know, what is it that you'd want when you're like, hey, what kind of medications are you on? I just want to be, make sure that I know this. So in case, you know, there's, you ever need it, I can, I can just be helpful and useful in some way and come from a position of, of listening and non-judgment. Um, but I, I completely hear what you're saying about just this lack of awareness of what's taking place and how severe. And oftentimes it's because we don't ask and we're so busy with our own lives. And this is, this is just so common. And when we come in, it's a crisis situation and those crisis situations are the hardest to have meaningful conversations and mm -hmm. and right that's you don't want to wait until that point um but as far as you know the engagement again you were living far away you didn't know what was going on and i think that's why even caremobi is so important um because these tools can help engage people who live further away. And it's just a point of education. I just need to know what, who your doctor is, what medications you're on. You know, I even tell my mom, you should know who my doctors are. Yep. Let's make this an, an equitable relationship. Yep. I also really, really want to touch on your point about how, you know, the question of did your care, caring for your father, you know, contribute to your mom's illness? And while, you know, Alzheimer's disease, we still don't even fully understand the right. underlying pathology. I will say that I truly believe that caregiving is an independent risk factor for the onset of illness. And we have many, many studies out there that talk about the increased incidence of depression, anxiety, the fact that many caregivers report worse self-rated physical health um, than non-caregivers. Many of them defer and put off their own visits because they're so busy taking care of the person they love. So absolutely 1000% do I think that that is a risk factor for chronic illness in the caregiver. And that is why it is an imperative. It is frankly, caregiving, I think is a public health crisis that we need to address. I will tell my clinician colleagues, when somebody brings somebody in for a visit, please take one minute to ask that person how they're doing, when their last checkup was, and to say that the next time they bring this person in, why don't they set up an appointment at the same time for themselves? Kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. I see this in my own mother, you know, the amount of stress, you know, this is somebody who's so healthy, watches her diet, exercises. She herself this year has seen certain deteriorations in her own health, which, you know, when her doctors talked to her, they said, you have no other risk factor other than the sheer volume of stress you are under caring yeah. for your husband. Yeah. And so stress is a known inflammatory marker. You know, I mean, it contributes to body-wide inflammation. And we know that this is really, can it contribute to all the vessels in our body that contribute to our heart health, our brain health. 
everything else. Um, so I really need caregivers who are listening to be aware of that, to take the moment to recognize that their own health may be being compromised by this and that you are only as good a caregiver as you are healthy yourself. And so it is absolutely a priority to you know, set boundaries and limits and prioritize your own health because you will not be an effective caregiver and you will only then impact the other people in your life. I say to my mother, you have to prioritize yourself because, you know, I know you're my mom and you care about me and you want to leave me out of this because you want to protect me. And that's, I am so grateful for that. However, if, and when something happens to you, I'm going to be the one that's responsible yep. and I need to be in the best position to do that. So please, if, if my, I'm the concern, then please like, let's work together to make this a better system for that our really family. makes sense yeah <clears throat> and that was not the culture that we had developed as a family it is you not know? a culture that we have as a society right. i think and that's part of what enlightened caregiver is about and what i'm trying to do with my work with my research is to create a movement behind this you know it's so much more than creating an app as i said or social media but it's about getting people to normalize these discussions stop burying our heads in the sand that no one's going to get older that this isn't going to happen to us everyone at some point is either going to need a caregiver or be a caregiver and it is so important that we have these discussions earlier frequently, often, informally, and normalize this. That is our only hope to get through this and to, to create a meaningful generational and cultural shift because it's not just your family. It's society as a whole. It's society as a whole, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay, so already we've gotten into at least three or four things there that's pretty deep, and, and I still have more questions, Tina. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what... I, I am curious what what brought you to doing this. Why are you here? Why are you doing the these things? Yes, so great question. And I think so much of my work, as I said, you know, they I you know I say I'm a researcher, but maybe there are people on this who are going to listen and be like she's a me searcher. But um, what do I mean by that? So, you know, I grew up in a house. Um, my parents came to this country as immigrants. They were physicians. Uh, I was the third kid of three kids. When my mother had her baby as a resident, she was an obstetrician gynecologist. My father is a vascular surgeon. They um, literally were working 100-hour weeks. There was no resident restrictions. Wow. My mother's maternity leave, quote-unquote, was a two-week vacation and after she had my sister. And so when they had my sister, they brought over my grandparents to visit for two weeks. They'd never been to the – they were in their 50s. They'd come from India. They'd never been to the, the left home before – and my grandmother took one look at their life and she was like, you're never going to be able to do this without us. And she never went back. She's 102 oh, wow. years old. Actually, she's still here with us in, in New wow. York. And she um, came to this country. She never looked back with my grandfather. Um, then they had my brother and then they had me. And when you have three, I have three, you need reinforcements. So my yeah, other sure. grandmother came. She's 96. She lived with me growing up. She primarily took care of me. And, um, I, and only now as an adult with children, do I realize what a blessing it was to have both my healthy grandmothers living with me and what an influence that was on my life. Yeah. So I grew up with these older women in my life. You can say I'm an old soul. And I think it fueled a passion for geriatrics and the aging population. But the caveat is that I had two doctor parents who said healthcare is broken. And when we took the Hippocratic oath, we said, you are never, ever allowed to enter healthcare because it's such a messed up field and it's okay. thankless and the system is working against you. I went to college. I was an anthropology major, 
totally told to stay away from medicine like my siblings. I was so passionate about studying communities and, and diverse populations and diverse families. I went into my senior year at Georgetown University and I got to take these elective courses and things like death and dying, HIV, HIV AIDS, and looking at the societal impacts of healthcare that I was always interested in. I studied this and I realized that people are living longer for the first time in my life and not better. And so when I graduated, I decided to pursue a career in healthcare, but first took a break to work at a local community hospital in their administration and fundraising and development. And that hospital was really committed to serving very underserved communities. Um, it was St. Vincent's Hospital in New York, which historically served um, the LGBT community um, and very poor and marginalized populations. I was inspired by a woman there who was a nurse who was job it was to go into communities, explore health problems, and build creative, innovative solutions to address them. I went on to practice clinically. I became a nurse practitioner. But once I realized that I was delivering, doing my best to deliver the best care to patients, but what you ultimately realize, as every kid does, your parents were right. The system was broken. I could keep giving these people the best care possible. And yet it was the way the system was, as you said, the fragmentation for many of my patients, it was poverty. There were so many factors working against them that I decided to go back and do a PhD and look at how our system um, really impacts the health of older, low-income, marginalized, diverse adults. And so I started exploring the health of immigrant populations, older immigrants like my grandparents who came to this country with no limited education, limited jobs, but contribute so much to the economic fabric of our country because they took care of me all day while my parents worked. Right. And- I started to look at their health outcomes, the fact that many of them now post-1996 Reform Acts do not have health insurance when they first come here at a critical period in their life when a lot of chronic illnesses are emerging. And I became an advocate for these populations, for these diverse, non-English speaking, low-income people to get the health care and services they need because it was this was a lot of who I was seeing in practice. And then ultimately, um, after exploring that, one of the best resources I stumbled upon looking at my own family and looking at my grandmother and what contributed to her longevity was her use of an adult daycare program. Okay. And I talked about this earlier in the podcast, how we think of these places as dancing and dominoes, but this was her first opportunity. They had a bus that picked her up. She had a nurse there and a social worker who was following her. She had friends, people who spoke her language because these centers were so good at kind of catering to the needs of diverse populations. They have bilingual staff, they have food that is, you know, culturally appropriate. She was engaged in activities. She looked forward to it. It gave her a reason to get up and go somewhere. It kept her mentally stimulated, physically active in a way that, you know, staying at home all day, once I had left and gone to college, she had no purpose. She couldn't find her purpose yet. So right. this gave her a reason. And that is so important for physical health and cognitive health is somebody giving somebody, keeping them productively engaged and giving them a place to go, learning a new activity, forcing her to use her brain, practice her English, talk to people. And I think that's why she's now, you know, 98 years old, actually, um, and is doing so well um, is because she found that community. And so, um, you know, I started looking into these programs from a research standpoint. I said, what do we know about them? Why isn't everybody engaged in these programs? They're such, and we, they are so under-resourced, so underfunded. And again, we think of them as places for dancing and dominoes, but they are actually highly effective platforms for chronic disease management. They are incredible 
um, tools that we have in the absence of a cure for dementia and Alzheimer's disease, these are the people that are keeping them functional, keeping them cognitive, you know, slowing their cognitive decline, keeping them engaged in improving their quality of life, making sure they have meals, giving their caregivers respite. I mean, that is something that no medication currently on the market offers. And so I began studying outcomes associated with these programs. And then I thought to myself, why aren't they more active on care teams? Why aren't they being engaged more to help families? They see them every day. They have so much information that doctors could use. There are nurses and social workers sitting in these centers and these centers just kind of exist and they don't have the resources for electronic record systems. They're not part of your epic EHR that we talked about. Right. Yet they are high advocates for people, particularly those with dementia, because they see them hours a day. They're the first to spot when something's wrong. And so I wanted to kind of advocate, use my research to advocate for them, demonstrate outcomes for payers to say, look, these centers are doing good work. We need to resource them. We need more people to afford them. They shouldn't just be for people with Medicaid and VA insurance. Yep. You know, there are people who can't pay $70 a day for them, which is what they cost. Yep. Um, but they're an underutilized, underrecognized resource. And so my research has really evolved to say these can really impact all people, but especially marginalized older adults. And so that's really how my research has evolved. And now I'm using technology to integrate these centers, but connect caregivers and just on a mission to do much more to better the day-to-day -day health of people and their families. So just to recap, we've talked about a mobile app, the CareMobi, uh, for communication purposes and other things that are are there and then we've talked about the enlightened caregiver the social media uh, space to help caregivers um, be more effective for the person they're caring for and for themselves and then we've talked about adult daycare centers now I think regionally those centers probably look different set up different funded differently so generically What's an adult daycare center and how would you find them? What are they there for? You know, how does a family utilize them? How should they even think about them? Yes. So adult day programs are so vital, especially if you're caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease. The earlier you put them in, as you experienced with your own mother, the earlier you can engage people in the center, the better it is for their health. The more functional they will be, the more less cognitive or it will slow their cognitive decline. Um, so what are they? These are not these are not different from senior centers. So adult day centers are not your local publicly funded senior center in your town. Okay. Adult day centers are typically paid for by a few different sources. If you have Medicaid insurance, that covers adult day programs. If you have VA insurance, that covers that. If you have long-term care insurance, that will often cover adult day programs. Um, the other thing um, is that you can often pay, you can certainly pay out of pocket. These types of centers cost about on average $80 a day, um, but they are non-congregate, non I'm sorry, they're non-residential facilities. Um, where people can go, they typically, if it's an adult day health center, um, and there's different models, there's social models, health models, but an adult day health center will have a nurse on staff, will have a social worker on staff. They can help with, um, you know, cleaning them, um, if, if that's the level of support they need, hygiene changing, they can help with medication administration. Your loved ones will receive one to two meals in these centers, whether it's breakfast and lunch. They can be there anywhere from four to eight hours a day. They get engaged in different activities, whether it's 
yoga, whether it's, you know, we think about bingo and prizes, sure. Um, But there's cognitive stimulating activity, activities for cognitive stimulation. There's exercise classes, which people in these centers love. Um, There's time to just engage with your peers. There's celebration of holidays that might be relevant. And, you know, these centers tend to be microcosms of their communities. They're like little neighborhoods within neighborhoods. So if you have, if people listening, you know, have somebody like my grandmother who doesn't, is not an English speaker and wants to go hang out with the people who can speak her language. And there's, you know, you live in a community or an ethnic enclave that's like that. Chances are a center like this will exist there that serves your um, loved one's needs. And, you, you know, if you've been to one adult day center, you've been to one adult day centers. They are tend to, you know, they're, they're variable in the types of programming they offer. Okay size. Um, as you said, it, it's very different from one place to the next. Every state regulates them differently. Some states don't even have a benefit for this, but they're critical and they're vital. And even just for a few hours a day, they can offer caregiver respite and they can do much more than just having someone come to your house. I always say this, you know, home care is a big industry and I love home care, but I think these things should work together because it's not enough to just have somebody come to your house and help you with a few things. You need the productive engagement. You need the socialization. We know that isolation and loneliness are worse for people's health than smoking cigarettes. So getting them out and forcing them to engage is so good for them and so critical. So how do we people find these centers? One of the best resources is the National Adult Day Services Association. You can Google their website, NADSA, N-A-D-S-A, and you can look and on their website, it has an option to find an adult day program near you. Um, There's lots of information about what these programs are. For people with moderate to late stage of dementia, it may be harder to newly put them in these programs. However, you would be surprised at the high level of acuity of people, this level of sickness. Most people to qualify for adult day program, you know, tend to be people who qualify for nursing home care. And these centers actually do an outstanding job of keeping people in their communities and outside of institutional placement. Mm -hmm. Um, So they differ because they are able to provide more hands-on, more intense care, more professional skilled care than a senior center, which tends to be catering to, you know, more able-bodied people they don't have nurses on staff. They might have a social worker, but a senior center tends to be something that you can just drive yourself to, yep. you know, if you're, and get yourself to versus an adult day program tends to, you know, they might offer most places offer transportation to get them there, mm-hmm. um, meals, medical man, you know, nursing care. Um, so it's a bit more intense for that next level of care, but it's really, it's where health and social care meet, I think. And people, um, you know, feel like they're just socializing with their peers, but they're being monitored, they're being observed, they're being cared for without almost recognizing, knowing that. And the, and the model of care is very person-centered, um, which our research has shown over the years. So it's an excellent underutilized resource. And the earlier you can get your loved one in there, the better they will do and the longer they will be able to stay home. Okay. All right. So the national, what was the uh, NADSA? Yes, the National Adult Day Services Association. Okay. Is the place to do a search for adult day centers and, in your and area. learn more about them. Yep. Yes. Okay. Learn more about what they do. Good resource. And then once you're shopping around, what kinds of things would you look for to say, this is a good fit for me? In an adult day program? Yeah. Yeah. So I think looking at um, the staff, 
how well staffed is it when you you should always do a tour of the facility and look at what people are doing you know are they just slumped over watching a show watching a tv show right. or are they really meaningfully engaged in activities often you'll see around the best centers have a uh, bulletin boards and different things for people write things that they're you know somebody in one center i was in recently in chicago they had a a, a bulletin board it was around thanksgiving and they said what are you most thankful for and so many of the people wrote that they were thankful for their centers oh wow um, and you know i think my i know my grandmother certainly felt the same way so look around it's really a, a gut instinct about the feel that you have when you get there the warmth of the staff the staff to participant ratios. Typically, there are mandates set forth by the state on that, but some states will bolster those. And particularly for people with dementia, they may have, you know, uh, more staff to fewer clients as far as the ratio goes. Um, so I would look at the makeup of the center as well. Um, you know, some centers only serve um, a younger population, like those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but most adult day centers will typically cater to an older population. So look at the staff, the food, the language, the feeling that you get when you're in there. Um, and, you know, it's always good to just start slow, you know, want to do days a week, see how they like it. You know, your loved one will call you and probably say, oh, get me out of here. I don't want to go. I have no fun. Yep. But if you ask the staff, they'll send you pictures of them leading the conga line or leading, you know, or right. being like they're very, people tend to be very different people when they're out of the house and it's good for them. And so, you know, ask the staff also, I, I would say the one other um, piece of advice I would give you is how they communicate with caregivers. How often, what, what are they using? Are they using a care mobi or are they using a post-it note? Right. Um, what, how can they, and always, always ask them how they can support you as a caregiver. Many of these centers offer caregiver support groups. Um, they will engage with you. They will call frequently. Those are the best centers because they are really part of the family dynamic. And I always say, you know, from a community lens, you need to have a village when you're caregiving. It is not the responsibility of a single individual, of a spouse, an adult child. It is not the responsibility of an entire family. You truly need a village. And these centers, when they're properly engaged, can be really helpful parts of your village. Caregivers tell me all the time they learn more about dementia care and management from their adult day staff than they did from their doctor. And I think that's so true. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to take a look again because, as I mentioned earlier, we tried and my mom didn't dig it. And, you know, I I pulled back and thought, well, this isn't a fit for now. Um, but also, I didn't really have a good sense of what I was looking for. I was really depending on her to, you know, report back. Yes. Um, <laughs> and as you say, I, I do know that there was a little bit of what you were saying where she was like, I, I don't want to go. And then I'd hear she had a great time while she was there. She yes. was talking to everybody and having a good time socializing. And it sounded good, but she yes. was she kept saying, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And like anything else, there's an adjustment period. But the staff are part, should be part of your village and good staff will be part of your care team. So it's important to, to engage them. OK, yeah, that's great. I will I will give that another look. So, okay. so, um, we talked about all of the things you've done and I, I looked at your, uh, list of publications and one of them that stuck out to me was, uh, called, uh, warning signs of acute infectious disease. And since I'm not a professional and my medical wherewithal is, you know, really been 
educated by trial and error and not, you know, any way formally. I don't really know what I'm looking for all the time. Yeah. I have some things that I've learned along the path of being my mom's caregiver, what to look for when, you know, when she first had a UTI um, in the year that she was diagnosed back in 2019, um, <clears throat> You know, I was describing what was happening. We were in the ER, and she was so uh, off. I mean, just speaking, uh, you know, non-words. You know, it was just gibberish. Um, And a few days before, she had been forgetful, but fine. And I was like, oh, this Alzheimer's sucks. And, And, you know, the people that I was communicating the symptoms to were like, that's not Alzheimer's because... Alzheimer's does not move quickly like that. That's something else going on with her body, and that's why we got into the ER and we found out it was a UTI. Of all things, it was a urinary tract infection driving this, and then I was like, well, so an infection can make dementia that much worse? I mean, that's how much I didn't know, you know, that an infection could make dementia worse was new information to me. Yeah. So, So I feel like, I don't even know what symptoms I should be looking for along the way. I've, you know, figured out some things for my mom. Um, but in general, what are some of those warning signs that caregivers should be looking for? And and why should you know that, right? This goes right. back to this whole thing about we are expecting people to be our eyes and ears in the community with no training and knowledge. And this is, again, so much of why I created Enlightened Caregiver um, and why I created CareMobi in particular, because oftentimes we miss these subtle changes that can be real indicators of an acute illness. And that's that paper that you were referencing was really how we studied what language people use and how they knew or recognized exactly what you're describing when something was off, when some there was a, a, an actual acute illness in a person. And so I, you used an interesting, you used a phrase that I want to emphasize. You said something was off with my mom, yep. right? That is the most telling and important sign. So important that when we created our app in CareMobi, there is a a button that you can press when something is off and you can describe their symptoms because that is really critical. You as the caregiver understand this individual's baseline. And I, as a provider, see a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease on their ICD-10. I'm like, oh, you know, you know, so you, it's really important to be effective advocates and say, this is not my mom's regular baseline. Right. Something is off. That language, number one, looking or seeming off today. I I don't care if you're not sure. Always, always tell, be report that. Regardless, it may be nothing, but more often than not, it is something. And very, very, very commonly, it is a urinary tract infection. Yeah. Um, and the problem right. with that is that, as you know, if left untreated, this can you know become spread to their bloodstream and, and become they can become septic very quickly. So that's why older people, their bodies typically don't have the ability to preserve homeostasis the way younger bodies do. They lose that ability over time. And so the slightest upset, whether it's a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, something else can really turn, go south really fast. Mm-hmm. It's my, um, so things and signs that you should look for that are critical. And again, you can find this information on enlightened caregiver as well, but, um, sudden sudden, and that's the key, sudden change in their ability to function independently. Yesterday, they were walking around. Today, they're saying, my legs are so weak, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Poor appetite. Changes in appetite are one of the earliest signs of this. So even if your loved one is a picky eater, they eat like a bird, if suddenly they're eating nothing, that's a problem. 
really, really early sign um, where you can intervene. As you said, a sudden change in their mood or behavior, that's very important. They're more suddenly much more agitated than usual. Um, and for instance, we had a, a participant in a day program where they said, you know, not only did he ask to go to the bathroom a few, like five times in an hour, he would start throwing his diaper on the floor. And this, they called the daughter and the daughter said, well, he has dementia. He's going to throw his diaper. And they said, this is not his usual behavior. And he did, in fact, have a urinary tract infection. Okay. Um, you know, falling, a fall is a very, very important sign of a potential infection. Um, my husband's grandmother re had a fall recently. And my mother-in-law said, well, I think her shoes were not well supported. And I said, but please, when she goes in, make sure they check her for urinary tract infection. And she had one. Oftentimes, a, a fall, the cause of a fall can be this. So it's really worth working them up and, and taking them in. Um changes in sleep if suddenly they're not sleeping as well they're sleeping more during the day that can you know again that happens as people progress with dementia and alzheimer's disease but it's the key word is this sudden change because that is a sign of a delirium which is something different than a dementia right mm -hmm. and so right. those acute signs can be um, often things that we really need to be tracking. And that is actually why we created CareMobi because, you know, I might see this person at home, the day program might see them during the day, the aide might see them if they live by themselves. But all of those people, if they're tracking something and they say, I've noticed this change the last two days, I'm getting concerned. Like, okay, when I take them to the doctor and I have to be that storyteller that we talked about, right. when the doctor's like, well, how long has this been going on? How is it affecting her sleep? How's it? You need to be able to answer all those questions so that they don't write you off and say, no, this is nothing. But to say, let's look at her medication. Let's draw some labs. Let's see, you know, and they start asking you the right questions. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So sudden changes. Uh, changes in appetite, mood, balance. Yep. Those sleep. Sleep. Okay. And be yes, and just behaviors and anything. You know, I would always say if your gut is saying something is not right with this person today, don't be afraid to take them in. Whether it's you know to an ER, to an urgent care, or call your doctor, but. Even if your gut is telling you, you know this person better than anybody else. So, you know, don't hesitate to advocate on their behalf because if you don't, no one else will. Yeah. Wow. So there are other questions that we could go down because we probably have to have another episode to have you back. I'm happy to. Uh, but, but coming back to your role at, at the College of Nursing, what what do you find yourself focusing on um, with when you do have interaction with students? What are you focusing on with them so that they can go out and do the things in the community that um, they could best serve the community with? And how might that impact caregivers' mindset as well? Yeah. So I think, you know, especially when I see nursing and medical students, you know, they're always about like, I want to learn how to do the IV. I want to learn these, you know, fundamental technical skills, which don't get me wrong, are important. And, and we work very hard on refining those in their clinical courses. But for us, I'm really working with students to think bigger about problems, to think bigger and use a design thinking approach to some of the biggest healthcare issues they see when they come in, because 
I've warned everybody, like my parents warned me, you are going to give the best care possible to people in the hospital. And at the end of the day, they're going to keep coming back because there's so many systems factors working against them. And how can you think bigger about what it is that's going on at home or in their communities or elsewhere? And how can you use your knowledge to empower families, to empower patients? That's really where I, you know, get with them is, is how can we learn to be better educators, not just for students that we teach that are paying tuition, but for our, everybody's a student, we're all learning, we're all trying to get better at, at caregiving. And so, I use, I, I really challenge them to use their youth, their knowledge, their uh, uh, different avenues of dissemination. You know, I write all these articles, which I thank you for reading, Christoph, but like most of the average caregivers are looking in a peer-reviewed journal for how to, to do this. And so to you think creatively about how we can get information out to people, how we can solve some of these problems, how we can um, do more for, for people. So it goes beyond just the technical skills. I also want to to them my passion for older adults and sort of combat ageism, you know, and, and say yeah. that it's, uh, we, I remember when I was, if somebody asked you, what did you want to specialize in? And somebody asked about geriatrics, I was the only person who raised my hand. Right. And I think we need to say that, and what we've done increasingly in our curriculums is made care of the aging part of everything, because no matter what you do, if you're like, oh, I'm just going to be an intern or star, I'm going to go into, you know, work on a surgical floor, whatever it is you're doing, you are going to come into contact with people who are aging. And that needs to be part of the focus and supporting people and living well, healthy aging, no more of this, oh, we're living longer, but not better. I'm challenging to think about how you can use a nursing and clinical lens and, and a medical lens to help people live better, well span, right? Not, you know, it's not just about lifespan, it's about well span. So, we're really trying to shift the paradigm in how we think and look more holistically at all the factors that contribute to people's health and think about creative transformative solutions that help people receive more equitable care because that is central to our teaching and to my work is really preserving health equity and making sure that everyone is getting the optimal care that they need and making sure students can support families in getting that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again, uh, Tina, for being here on the episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave with listeners, many of whom are caregivers? You know, I just will say that, you know, there's no, in, in caring for people, um, there's no such thing as perfection. It's about progress, not mm. perfection. If you're doing, if you're listening to this podcast and if you're doing the best you can with the information that you have at a given time, you're doing a great job. And I encourage you to think about CareMobi, to think about Enlightened Caregiver, to think about participating in research um, and because there's so much we can do together um, and there's so many free resources and tools out there for people who are doing this to help you do it as well as you can and make you feel supported. Thanks so much. Really Thank appreciate you. you being here. And, and I'm for happy to come back anytime. Excellent. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. Well, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with Alzheimer's. Please visit the Living with Alzheimer's website at lwalz.com, where you can subscribe to the show and find all the resources we discuss in podcast episodes. We'll see you next time on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast.